Welcome, Welcome to, to the Better, Better Call Daddy Show. This is Big Daddy. Oh my God, that's hysterical. You're not going to believe this. Oh, oh my God. God. Five stars. Five and a half stars. Papa. My dad is my hero. Grandpa, are you ready? I love a good happy ending. Oh boy. Hey, hey, It's a phony baloney. And a tit for tatter. Hey, a lot of these things, I don't know where you're getting them from. It sounds like they're coming from when I look in the mirrors. Damn the public. Damn the public. <laughs> Heather Vaughn experienced severe and chronic bullying from childhood through high school graduation. After moving to Chicago in 2006, she set her sights on getting a new start in a new city. I know what that's like. She soon realized that a pattern was emerging, stemming from the days she was bullied. She was allowing life to happen to her instead of being an active participant. Heather decided to take a turn inward, a soul-searching journey filled with unknowns. In taking that journey, she became resilient, attuned to the bigger picture, resulting in healing from her traumatic past. Her new book, Kind, Four Steps to Healing a Bullied Heart and Becoming Your Own Best Friend, I highly recommend. Heather, welcome. Hi, Rena. How are you today? I'm good. How are you? I am good. I am very good. I'm very excited. Oh my gosh. Well, I feel like I know you a lot better now that I just read that <laughs> book you wrote. Oh, awesome. Yes. I'm glad that you read it. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. It's a good view into like my experiences and stuff. So I think, yeah, it's a good representation of where I'm at now, where I was and where I'm at now, I would say. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I mean, the things that stick out, one, that you were called ugly. Yes. As I get older, I don't really define ugly and pretty anymore. I think we're more so in a space, and I, I thank our generation Zers for this. It's more so about what's attractive, if that makes sense, versus aesthetically appealing and things like that. So I think at the time, it really represents like the 90s, the early, late 80s, 2000s, where all the pressure was put on women to just be perfect. I think so anyway. That's just about in my experience. Yeah. I myself have gone through bullying. It's mm. horrible. Like I ended up switching schools because of it. Oh, wow. That's yeah, that's intense. I think yeah, for us, we had at that point, we had two middle schools. And I think if I would have went to the second middle school, it would have been a mess. So I, I probably got the, the best end of the stick, if that makes sense. Yeah. I want you to talk about what was said, how that made you feel like mm. take me back to that experience. It's a very layered answer. So I hope that when I approach it, it gives you a better context of where I grew up and a good context of the family dynamic that kind of can lead into bullying outside of the home, right? So I'm the youngest of three girls. So I am young by a lot of years. I mean, like my sister's 10 years older than me and my the oldest sister is 10 years older than me and my other sister's eight years older than me. So that's a big age gap. I mean, we are technically and two different generations. And when you're around us, you really get the sense of that, right? But our father, it sounds like you have a really good relationship with your dad. <laughs> but I think my father, he was just a very like social person within the community. Like he's just a very fiery, like take me out into the community. And the downside of that, you know, he never wanted girls, right? He never wanted girls and he got three of them, right? So it's like the worst case scenario could happen to this man. You know, a lot of that negativity and the talking of looks and how you're perceived by the community, it really did start at home. 
And I think that my dad being that social butterfly that he was and is to this day, I think that his perception of me, and I, he really did talk really negatively about us in the, in the community, which is horrible. So that negativity, I really think followed me in middle school, high school. I grew up in a city, don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to make it seem like it's Mayberry because <laughs> it's not, but it is a city. With that in mind, a lot of the people knew each other. They knew who I was. So I think a lot of that is just a very toxic, parasitic type culture that it's growing a lot since I left. But I think that, that my dad's presence in the community really did lead a lot to the bullying that I experienced in high school. And how does that make you feel? It's disconcerting, right? It's like, it's like who am I? It's like, I'm just existing in the school, trying to get to class, quite frankly. Uh, so I, that's the biggest thing that I'm trying to do every day. So for me, it was just like, people would describe me as being very, like my posture was really bad. Like it was almost like the weight of the words, it presented and it manifested in my body. So I was very depressed. I think I was depressed between pretty much all of my childhood, but I would say it was really pronounced probably from the summer of fifth grade up until I graduated and probably a couple years afterwards. Cause I mean, I left high school with essentially nothing in terms of a friend group and things like that. It's a very lonely time. I think that's the best way to describe it. Very isolating. The isolation is the biggest part of it. The things that are available today just were not available. I, I don't, I hate to contrast, but because kids still experience bullying, even with all these resources at their disposal. So it doesn't mean that it goes away, but there was just no outlet for me. So it was basically me to myself, very lonely and just very, not really a clear way out because I didn't have a lot of models in terms of what it looks like to get out, if that makes sense. The way that you talked about it in the book, like when you described you were tripped. Mm, yeah, yeah, I was tripped in the hallway. I'll never forget that. I, it was the class to where we were leaving for the day. You know, everybody's rushing to get out. And so am I, because it's like, we're trying to get on the bus and I'm more concerned about where am I gonna sit on this bus? Not all seats were created equal, you know, during that time. And yeah, I was tripped in the hallway, fell flat on my face, had an audience for that. It's like you're almost not even alive at that point when your safety is seemed as expendable. Yeah. Were there any people who threatened you? I think that I guess more so with fights, not so much like my personal safety. I can't say that I was going to be like killed or, you know, what, to the extent that it goes to today. But I think wanting to fight a lot, like wanting to fight me, wanting to have, you know, we meet after school and we fight and I'm like, I'm pretty sure you guys don't even know what my voice sounds like. How can you have this vendetta that you, yeah. So I think that that was a lot, just, you know, I wrote about it in my book, the, the whole experience when I was in the, the cafeteria with someone who at the time I thought was a friend, but she was, you know, playing both sides and, you know, just trying to instigate something to where I have to fight for whatever the fight was for. I don't think that was ever even made clear to me or anyone in that time, but fearing for my life, I think, I think I've felt feared for my life in terms of me being so depressed. What could that lead to? But in terms of just the desire to fight, I think I did pretty good in terms of avoiding things like that. And just, it sounds so trivial today, but it's like, it's a brainwashing. It's a ritual that you go through every day, just trying to get to class. I think for me, I really did avoid any type of violence because of that, because I really took four flights of stairs just to go to a first floor classroom. It's bizarre.
And then how did that affect your studies? And mm. I look back on it now and I didn't even realize how dangerously close I was to not even graduating high school. I went from a straight A student up until fifth grade, which is probably arguably could be considered like the hardest part of your schooling because you have to learn everything. But now you're trying to learn in a consensus type of format, right? So I did really well in those grades. I mean, I was honor roll free pizza at Pizza Hut. I don't know if that was a thing here in Chicago, but we did have it. But then after that, it was just downhill. Like I had C's and D's and F's. I failed it quite a bit. Um, we had a standardized test. I'm not sure if that exists here in Illinois. I'm sure it probably across the country and different states. But there was a standardized test and I was struggling. I did not pass it until the very last round of taking it in the 12th grade. I almost didn't graduate high school because you had to pass that ninth grade competency type test to say at least you're at a ninth grade level to be able to leave school and to get your diploma. I think that that was the benefit of 12th grade because 12th grade for me was where I had limited interaction with people. Like I was, half of my day was spent working. Like it was a work study type of year for me. It, there was still bullying, but it was a little bit less than 12th grade. So at that time I was able to separate myself even more from the other kids to where I finally had the space to, to, to pass that test, but yeah, it, it was bad. You mentioned in the book, like your odds of being where you are today are super slim. Mm. It's on the first couple of pages of the book. And I would encourage those who do read it to take the ACE test. So this is over probably about 80 years of study that say that if you have this certain score on the ACE test and you will be least likely to do a lot of things like the score that you have, you have a score of four or higher. You have so much trauma that you've experienced that you don't understand what your resources are. You don't understand a way out of your trauma to be successful as a person in the world, right? And to be able to have a six on the ACE test. So I'm two points higher than indicate it'll be really, really bad for me to cope. To be able to graduate college, to graduate high school, you know, and I think that's the biggest thing is to not give into that pressure of not fitting in to where I put myself in a position where I could have gotten pregnant, right? There's a lot of opportunity to fit in, to have those relationships. So not giving into that, I think a lot of that is probably personality. To overcome that is a huge testament to the will to say there is more, like that optimism. Another part I thought was really interesting is that when you started taking stock mm -hmm. and when you started disconnecting from social media and drinking enough water and sleeping enough throughout the day, what you wanted to research, mm -hmm. who you wanted to have conversations with. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. There were a lot of events that really put you in a place where you're like, okay, what is the world really about in real life, right? And for me, one of those was when I was laid off from one of my jobs back in 2010. I came to Chicago, you know, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. And when that position ended, there were some elements that existed within that position, which I had no role models for corporate America, except the people that I had encountered in corporate America. I, I didn't quite get what this was. Like, 
we have these rules of the road or, you know, things that we say that we as a company believe in, but over here, we're kind of not really living by them. So it's like that contradiction of existence was just like, wow. I think that's where it comes with the trauma. Like you always want to do the right thing and then you get into the real world and it's that's not really an expectation, if that makes sense, that you can adapt as you go along. Coming out of that experience for me of corporate America, I'm thinking, okay, I need to reassess what I believe. And in doing that, I think it's one thing I began to appreciate. I like a more academic approach to things and understanding how we learn as people. And that's one thing I mentioned in the book is when you really embrace and understand how we are meant to learn, you really can take that understanding and place it in so many different places in your life. And for me, that was a key component in my healing. So reading journals and understanding like, okay, these are the dynamics in a toxic or trauma-filled household. These are the people, what they look like when they go through trauma, you know, what the eyes can look like because they're under so much stress and under so much disease within their body. So taking that more scholarly approach, it helped me understand, okay, I'm not alone, you know, and what this is and what this experience is, even though I don't have someone that I can call or contact, I'm not alone. So it's like that by itself allows you to say, okay, this is something that is almost agnostic to culture. If your family has been in America for more than one generation, the things of America become a part of the the family dynamic, the hustle culture that we experience now, or the climbing the corporate ladder, what it used to be before. And all the things that are victims of that mindset, really, it's nothing new to me. I don't want to cheapen my experience because it was very important because I have to live with that experience. But there's a lot of comfort in realizing you have someone that you can relate to. On the other hand, I like to talk to the people in my family, right? What did they understand about what I was experiencing? And for me, I was really surprised to learn that so many of my family, they knew how I was being treated in school. Why did you guys say something? So that understanding, that meditation of talking to other people in your family, it helps you bring all these ideas. For me, it was was like mixing it all together and saying, okay, this is almost like the culture of America to be toxic and not really have a culture. Like it becomes almost like everyone is against each other a little bit. And we have a family dynamic that supports almost like we know what's happening to you, but we went through it or we don't know how to get you out of it or we don't care. So we have to take all the, and just putting it together and saying, okay, I'm an adult now. So what can I do with this understanding? to move my life forward. And I think that was the biggest thing. Where do I go from here? Do you still do that now? I feel like I do it, but it's more so it's almost like an embodied type of way. So it's like, I take things at face value and then I try to understand what my resources are to find out, is there something outside of what I'm being told that supports it? So it's like, it's almost embodied. Yeah, I think that's what I like about the approach is because if you're more of an analytical, that that does not mean that we don't, I don't cry. I mean, I've, the tears are very helpful to understand that this is something I need to fix but I can't live there. So I, yeah, I think for me, it's almost an embodiment of like, okay, I want to make sure I have a balanced understanding before I make a judgment. Speaking of embodiment, another thing that you wrote about is that you have gained and lost 50 pounds and mm-hmm. you're on the fifth time of yeah. fighting that. Mm-hmm. That's a big challenge. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How have you been able to like love yourself and be okay with where you're at? almost like accepting that some parts of it, of the healing journey will always be there. That doesn't mean that I don't work on it. 
it's just like okay this is a piece that i'm always it's always going to be there so i think you just love yourself you appreciate yourself that you recognize that this is a your achilles heel or that you understand that for now maybe i'll just keep the 50 pounds on until it feels like it's all coming together and it's more natural and it's a lifestyle change. I think that's the thing. One of them was the cabbage soup diet. And this was back in like the 90s. Here I am like 15 and I'm 5'10". So right, I'm like 180 pounds I mean, at the time. Could I lose weight? Yes. But is it the end of the world that someone 5'10 weighs 180 pounds? No, I really should not be focusing on the cabbage soup diet, right? But it's like now I realize I've taken tests. I'm generally healthy. But is it healthy to keep this amount of weight on? Probably not. No, it's not. But I'm allowing myself to just be in this skin versus being on the verge of like, everything must change. I can find clothes that fit me. People seem to like what I wear. I'm not ridiculed, at least not to my face that I've heard for my weight. Most important of all of those things is that I'm okay. I mean, I feel okay. I feel good. And I'll let the time kind of dictate what happens next. I've overcome a lot. So I, I'm allowing myself to kind of like go through this homeostasis and see what's next over the next couple of months and years. Can we talk a little bit more about what you've mm-hmm. overcome? <sighs> Let's see. There are a lot of things. I don't write about everything in the book simply because I want to, that's something that will maybe come out, you know, in maybe, I don't know, my 80s or 90s, like the, the full memoir. I hope we all write one so we can leave something with people. But I think for me, it's overcoming just, of course, bullying being in a family that has a lot of embedded trauma. I think that in the Black community, especially from the Black community that are from the South, there's a lot of normalizing of trauma and normalizing of trauma bonds in that community. And I think that that's what we see a lot in the news. A lot of people not really working on those trauma bonds and they're being normalized within family units. So I think like my father, he had numerous affairs on my mother. So just seeing that person just not only humiliate us to our faces, but to humiliate us in the community in a very small city that everyone knows. I mean, it's like, I can talk about it now and everybody knows. So they're like, yep, that's his daughter's, you know, yep, and he was whatever. So it's like overcoming that, not having, it's like to grow up in a two-parent household and not have that strong male figure. I think that's a big thing that I've overcome. Yeah, I would say like allowing myself to embrace failure. I I don't talk about it in the book, but I did mention that I failed. One of the conversations we had really quickly on Facebook was, you know, I failed out of air traffic control because of a lack of communication. And it's like, it's not really bad communication. It's just, I was not speaking at all. (laughs) You know, I was just like almost mute, like just in shock of the whole experience of air traffic control because it is very stressful. And then you have someone who hasn't really worked through their issues a hundred percent or at least enough to be able to be placed in that position, but embracing that failure and making that the talking point of all the job interviews that I had afterwards. That was the cool thing about it. To be able to talk about it and say, yes, I was a part of this program. I took this test for the federal government government to see if I had the aptitude to be an air traffic controller, come to find out I do, and not being able to follow through on it. Because if I have a question about something, I don't know how to articulate it effectively and be concise. So I think that was the thing that just embracing those failures was huge because there's always like this tendency to want to tower and say, 
you know, that didn't happen. I'm involved with an organization called Toastmasters International, right? I had heard of Toastmasters in 2006, and I was a part of air traffic control in 2012. So we have a six-year gap of me being made aware of the program and not really taking hold of it. I'll tell you, after I read your book, I signed off the internet for 48 hours, and it was so good for me. And I did no work on a Sunday and no work on a Saturday (laughs) and spent the entire Sunday camping with my family. Nice. Nice. Isn't it just like refreshing? When I look at myself, when I think about when I'm on social media too much, it's almost like a little bit of stress and anxiety sets in a little bit. Like, okay, did I miss something? Did I get an alert (laughs) that I should have gotten or didn't get? Because one overlooked thing in social media, and I'm sure, especially probably in your space, if you overlook unintentionally, it can turn into something big so it's like to step away it's you realize how much that you know the stiffness and the the hunchness in your body can really manifest because of it yeah but yeah overall i think for me it was really crucial to say press the pause button i'm like in the perfect position at the time i don't have kids i'm not married so it's like why not take the advice that i'm reading and apply it and i think that that was key have you ever confronted your dad yeah both of my sisters we have And his answer is he just didn't know what he didn't know at the time. But it's like, it's almost like he can say that, right? But it's, I have information from like some of my aunts and saying like he knew, we all knew, we all knew what he was doing with his affairs and things like that. It's almost like I have to appreciate that for him, denial is a part of his coping mechanism. So if that's who he is, I have to go and allow him to be in the world because at his age, he's in his seventies, right? So it's like, he's really not going to change. You have to really make a concerted, deliberate effort to change. So I have to accept that, right? It's like, okay, this is who this person is. When you couple that with understanding what the American experience is for so many people, the acceptance becomes not only intellectual, but it also becomes something that you can say, I wish that person the best. I understand what his relationship is to my existence in this world. But I also have to think about life preservation a lot more or preservation of my sanity because I don't agree with denial. I like to be in it in reality as much as possible. So we'll always be like ships passing in the night and appreciating that. So that means that when I understand what my space looks like, then there's an opportunity for something or someone or some idea to come and fill that space that is more aligned to who I am. I think if we don't understand our parents and what they do, the good and the bad, we are bent on on repeating it. I think that's one thing I'd like to do. And I, I always check myself and like whenever I talk to like my sisters or a friend and I'm saying, but you know when you do this, but I always catch myself because I feel like there's probably a huge opportunity that I'm probably projecting on that person. And I'll retrace it and say, you know what, something that I do a lot is I forget to turn the light off or whatever. And I blame other people because I forgot. A horrible example, but it gives you an idea of just say like, I can only recognize it in that person because I'm doing it. So to check your behavior, to check the desire to really want to divert attention from some of the bad things that we do, it's human behavior. It's protection, right? It's like, 
I don't want you to know that I filled out of air traffic control. I'm a perfect person. Don't judge me of anything because I'm trying to be the, you know, but just because I fail at something doesn't mean I have bad intent. That's a revelation for myself. I think I probably just had that revelation right now. So I think for me, just understanding that I'm having a bad moment and I fail at something, I'm not doing something well, does not mean that there's something sinister at play. So it's just coming to peace with that and saying, yeah, these things exist and they happen. Learn from it, embrace it, let it become your story that you can tell to others and move on as best you can. How has this played into your relationships and your dating? I think that for me, it's overall, it allows me to accept the other person more so as exactly as they present themselves. I think Maya Angelou (laughs) said it best. When someone tells you who they are, believe them the first time. That desire to be that listening ear for people. Actually, I had a really horrible experience with a a friend that I worked with and he and I had been friends for a while. He just decided that we were never friends and we had never been friends in life. I'm like, how old are we at this point? this, This happened recently, right? But it's like allowing him and me to say, okay, this person, were they presenting behaviors that I probably glossed over? Oh, yes, they were. Yes, they did. Yeah. I could pretend like this came out of left field. No, I knew, you know, there's some behaviors that we see. So it's just allowing myself now to say, this is something that it's a pattern. It's a pattern over a period of time. And like they say a lot in psychology, you, you always want to look for clusters of behavior, right? If someone's always late, if someone's always ignoring you, if someone, that's a cluster of they don't respect you or your time. So that's enough for you to say enough of that. It's like not want to be a Russian discarding people because that's because I need people to have grace for me a lot of times, right? Because I'm still trying to figure things out. But if you have that cluster of events and they happen, say, six times after you've told that person after the third time that you don't like it, you have to allow that person to be who they are and let them go. So I think that for me, that's helped a lot. Did your mom let him go? Who's that? Oh, they got divorced. Yes. They're divorced. My parents. Yes. They got divorced. And it's so weird. They got divorced after like 36 years of marriage. Whoa. (laughs) Yeah. That's like so rare from what I understand. Yeah. What was the kicker? Yeah. He had an affair with someone who was my sister's high school friend. It was a very toxic relationship. My mom is pretty smart. She was and talented and gifted, right? So her IQ had to have been 120 or higher. So she's a smart lady, but we make decisions that I make decisions that just aren't the best. And we hope that we can help our kids kind of guide through them, but we can also learn through them um, as adults. So it's all, but yeah, it was a relationship that ended luckily after 36 years of marriage. Wow. When you have that time, you realize that this person really didn't bring a lot to the table that was something that she could really count on. Is there anything that you would like to ask my dad? I would like to ask him, hearing a little bit about what my father did, what is his opinion of men like that, who stay in relationships, who stay in marriages, that make them very unhappy? That's a great question and one that has not been asked. I'm so glad that we connected. I'm so happy too. Thank you so much, Rena. You're you're great. Thank you so much. This is fun. Yay. Now, let's switch it over to Grandpa. Heather is an interesting story and maybe just gave me a new perspective. I think a lot of times 
you know, when somebody's being bullied, it's almost like bullies preying on someone who shows that they're maybe a little extra timid or that they don't seem to be with it. You know what I mean? Where they're not part of the in crowd, someone that's a little isolated. And can't that really happen also if you're not really encouraged at home or you don't get the proper encouragement from your parents or your brothers or sisters, where if somebody's putting you down, even at home, that that has a way of also being an outer appearance that when you go to school, you don't seem to be 100% with it. Isn't that what bullies love? They love to prey on someone that seems to be out of it or weak or confused or not necessarily popular. And these bullies who have their own issues of self-confidence say, well, if I pick on this one or that one, I'll feel better and put myself ahead of them. Kind of a crazy analysis, wouldn't you say? I mean, you saw me get bullied and have a really hard time in middle school. It was so bad. I wanted to switch schools for high school. Right. But your father would be there to stick up for you, would talk to the other parents or would be there as a protector. Where was her father? He was absent to a lot of the growing up of the girls. She mentioned that he wanted to have boys. Well, here I am. I wanted to have boys too, but I didn't mind having girls. But the fact is, is that I didn't realize that I could strike out, that I could have only a certain amount. I just thought I could have as many as I wanted. But just like anything else, it's not always what you want. When you want to have a relationship with another person, you have to give equal, if not even more preference to your better half, to the person that you're living with and respect their wishes. In Heather's case, her father didn't want to do that. And not only that, but I think as the years went by, he still wanted to have a relationship, I think, at least in his mind with his daughters and his wife. But he also felt like something is missing and he wanted to recapture his youth, go out with young girls or have affairs, thinking that he could maybe change his life. And again, selfishly speaking, only thinking of himself on his own wants and needs and not on the family's needs or on his better half's needs. And when you, I don't know any way of saying it, but when you cheat, whether it's the three daughters or whether it's his wife, and not give the type of encouragement and backing of a good father and a good husband, the only person he ends up really cheating is himself. And eventually, the daughters and the wife are going to say, didn't she say also, where you see a cluster of, of bad activity that shows that you don't care about a person? Isn't she also with a little bit of wisdom as well on recognizing that sometimes people don't change their behaviors. And when they're negative and they're against what you believe in, eventually it comes to a bad ending. Unfortunately, she was not able to count on her father in any way. And she had to get stronger, take the bullying, take the disassociation of or the disruption of her family network and say, hey, I just have to rise above it. Thanks for listening to the Better Call Daddy Show. Now you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and TuneIn. If you've enjoyed this episode of the Better Call Daddy Show, please feel free to review it at ratethispodcast.com slash bettercalldaddy. Add Better Call Daddy Podcast on IG at Rena Friedman Watts on LinkedIn.com. 